Our scripture lesson today is an epistle lesson from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. Let mutual affection continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The book of Hebrews is a complex book, but rewarding, especially to an audience deeply knowledgeable in the Old Testament, and especially if that audience can read biblical Greek. And as the great, the great preacher Fred Craddock noted, most congregations will acknowledge we are not that audience. Also, we're not having the same conversations the original audience was having. For example, the first two chapters of Hebrews are an extended consideration of Christ's place in the cosmos relative to angels. When was the last time you talked about that with your friends? Once the angel question is settled, spoiler alert, Jesus is superior to angels, the author of Hebrews unspools a long Old Testament-heavy argument involving rituals of sacrifice and the priesthood of Melchizedek. Again, not a name springing off the tongues of 21st century Christians. So Hebrews can be tough, but that is not to say that Hebrews does not reward our study. Absolutely, it does. Even us non-Greek readers can find breathtaking verses. I've got lots of them underlined in my Bible. For example, 2.18, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. And 4.12, indeed the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I believe in the margin of my Bible I have written, that is the best verse in the whole Bible. And who doesn't love the encouragement found in 12.17? Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. When that verse comes up, we're beginning to turn a corner into what seems like it might be the easy part of Hebrews. After the angels, after the sacrificial rituals and Melchizedek, and also after a long recounting of the faithful service of our Old Testament ancestors, comes a series of exhortations, like, for example, 1214, pursue peace with everyone. You do not have to be a biblical scholar to appreciate that one. And then we come to today's text, with its urging to mutual affection, 
and hospitality to strangers and care for prisoners and faithfulness in marriage and repudiation of greed, you'd think I would have spent the week pleased that I wouldn't even have to write a sermon since everything here should pretty much preach itself. You'd think. But instead, this text nagged me all week. Because the author of Hebrews took 277 verses to get to this point. 277 of the most elegant, most skillfully argued text in the whole New Testament. And so to just accept these verses without considering how the author got to them seemed kind of lame or careless, like we might miss something. It's too easy. If all the author of Hebrews wanted us to know was that love and hospitality and so on are good principles by which to live, well, everyone kind of knows that already. You don't even have to be Christian to think these are good ideas. You don't even have to be religious. I could stand up in front of a good-spirited, kind, and well-meaning secular audience, read these exhortations, and everyone could agree, and we could all go home to lunch. So why? Did the author first spend all that time on angels and sacrifice and Melchizedek just to tell the audience something everyone already knew? What do these arguments obscure for us today have to do with behaviors that even non-religious people would agree are good for individuals and society? To answer these questions, we return to speculations on the original audience for the book of Hebrews. Although no one can say exactly who they were or where they lived, scholars tend to agree that the book titled Hebrews is addressed to a first-century Christian community in crisis. Judging from the topics of the author's argument, they're an established congregation, well-schooled in the faith and the scriptures, with a record of joy and generosity and good works but something seems to have taken the wind out of their sails. Recall those drooping hands and weak knees of chapter 12. They're struggling. Chapter 2 makes reference to drifting away, and chapter 10 suggests that some have been neglecting to meet together. There is reason to wonder about the continued strength of their commitment to Christ and to one another. The text also suggests that there are many pressures upon them. The idea of grace as free gift is still new. Possibly some members burdened by guilt long for more tangible acknowledgement of the expiation of their sin, the kind of sacrificial rituals that they might have seen in other communities. What's more, we know from church history that Christians suffered persecution And we know from Hebrews that members of that audience had suffered imprisonment, confiscation of property, and even torture because of their faith. And they also suffered the pressure of shame. In a society in which one's social standing hung always in a balance between honor and shame, you heard that in the other scripture readings today, to name oneself a follower of someone who died a shameful death was social suicide. And finally, Hebrews contains a few words of warning against being taken in by what they call strange teachings. That specific reference is about dietary laws, but maybe arguments about angels were addressing other strange teachings. Again, there's a lot we can't know, 
but we know there's a lot going on. So what does this struggling band of believers need in the face of all these pressures? Perseverance. Where will perseverance come from? Commitment. And where does commitment come from? Identity. When you know who you are, you can stick by it, be consistent to it, commit. And for this audience to understand who they are, they must understand who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. That is what the author of Hebrews spent 277 verses explaining. The author begins with this premise, Christ is superior to everything the world has ever known, superior to angels, superior to every priest of every description. Other priests offered their sacrifices in earthly tabernacles. Christ serves in the heavenly sanctuary itself. And unlike all earthly priests making their sacrifices over and over, Christ the high priest made the perfect sacrifice, one sacrifice for all sin, bringing complete forgiveness for all time. And all of this he did as a human being. On this the author insists over and over. Hebrews 2.11 says that we have one father with Jesus and that he calls us brothers and sisters. He shared with us in flesh and blood, that's 2.14. He lived as we lived. He went through what we go through. A high priest who, 4.15, in every respect has been tested as we are. He sometimes cried when he prayed, 5.7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And what about all that talk about angels? It was to teach the reader in 2.16 that Jesus did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham, human beings. 2.17, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect. Why? So he would know how it feels. When you know how someone feels, you're a lot more able and ready to help them. 2.18, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Those who are being tested need perseverance. Perseverance comes from commitment. Commitment comes from identity. Christ committed himself to humanity as one who identified with humanity. And our identity as human beings with whom Jesus shared experience creates our commitment to mutuality. Today's text is a call to mutuality. Let mutual affection continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because you know how it feels to be a stranger. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. Feel what they are feeling and see how it changes your priorities. Let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled because you can feel in your mutual love the pain your spouse would feel if you acted otherwise. 
Keep your lives free from the love of money because love orders your priorities and money has no mutuality. Money will not love you back. Be content with what you have, especially with the mutual affection of the community around you and with the love of the one who has promised never to leave or forsake you because he is committed to you in mutual love. This text is not just a lot of good ideas. It is a necessary response to our mutual humanity with one another and with Jesus Christ. We share this mutual commitment even with the original audience of Hebrews, even if we're not talking about the same things they were. We are not, for the most part, having conversations about Jesus' position among the angels or the priesthood of Melchizedek, but certainly there are pressures, and certainly we are talking. We're talking about the effects of the pandemic and the continued uncertainty of living with COVID. We're talking about the anger all around us, the inability to cooperate for the common good. And strange teachings, oh my, yes. The teaching, sometimes implicit, sometimes outright, that bullying and violence and discrimination are the right way, even the godly way. That is a strange teaching by which we must not be carried away. We feel the pressures. And in our worried conversations, we search and search for solutions. When we are faced with problems of such deep root and such grand scale, it can be very discouraging if we think we have to be the solution. So discouraging that we may be tempted just to drift away. But what if instead of trying to be a solution, we concentrated on being a sign? We can't solve the world's problems, but a community of empathy and mutuality is a sign of what is possible, a sign of hope, a sign of a better way. A community of empathy and mutual affection may not solve the problems of the whole world, but it does make a difference for those who are being the sign and for those who are seeing the sign. On an evening a few months ago, I was out on a walk. And this was when I had a cast on my left arm and a sling on my right arm, and I was miserable. Downtown had emptied out, so I didn't see many people. But those I did pass tended to glance away. And then I happened to cross paths with a guy coming out of the service entrance of one of the more industrial-looking buildings up at the north end of Maine. He looked a little bedraggled himself, after what had probably been a long day of mutual labor, manual labor, excuse me. He crossed the street, glancing my way as he did so. And then he stopped, and he looked over his shoulder at me, and he turned, and from across the street, he looked me in the face, and he said, I hope you feel better. I smiled, and I thanked him. I don't think I'll ever forget it. That one stranger paused, felt what I was feeling, and turned to let me know it. I can't tell you how much that meant, but I can tell you it felt like a sign. Almost as though I heard him say, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. May we let mutual affection continue 
not just because it is a good idea, but because it is our identity in mutual love with Jesus Christ. And in that identity, may we be a sign. Amen.